Of Geeks Crossing. Quick, what's the most iconic last name you can think of? What did you say? Smith? Jones? Maybe Washington? Well, those are probably some of the most recognizable last names in terms of people you run into in your neighborhood. But if you're looking for a specific last name, one that virtually anyone you talk to would connect with a specific person and brand, doesn't get much more iconic than Disney. With Disney included among the t shirts, backpacks, and lunchboxes children bring to their first day of school the hottest vacation destinations for theme park enthusiasts and cruise lovers alike, and, of course, the television and movie memories hundreds of millions of people cherish for their whole lives. We've certainly been no stranger to Disney products on this podcast between our discussions of new Marvel content and Eric's Kingdom Hearts episodes, along with many other miscellaneous Disney stuff, not to mention the Disney content that is yet to be released on this podcast. Disney is so iconic that it's often easy to think of the term Disney as a brand before even realizing it's the last name of a real guy the company's founder, Walt Disney. Most of the brand is just called Disney, after all, though there are some noticeable exceptions. Here's an experiment. Go ahead and Google Disney theme park in California, and then Disney theme park in Florida. You'll notice an interesting and seemingly arbitrary difference. The classic park in California is called Disneyland. Nowadays, it's called Disneyland Park. But the park in Florida? Walt Disney World. Why the distinction? Why not just Disney World? Well, if you didn't know, today is actually the 50th anniversary of Walt Disney World. The grand opening ceremony was 50 years ago today. So this episode of Renaissance Matt seems like a great opportunity to answer the questions and explore the fascinating history of the two Disneys. That's right, the two Disneys. We all know Walt, the great innovator and creator of such concepts as animated films and family-friendly American theme parks. But what about his brother Roy Disney? An extremely important figure in the history of the Disney Corporation in his own right, Roy has faded into relative obscurity, something he probably wouldn't have had a problem with due to his distaste for the spotlight. That said, the dedicated Disney fanatic can still catch mentions of Roy Disney throughout the Disney parks, most famously a statue of Roy sitting on a bench with Minnie Mouse in Walt Disney World, as a tongue-in-cheek reference to the famous statue of his brother Walt holding hands with Mickey Mouse. But why is Roy commemorated in Walt Disney World specifically? I've asked a lot of questions, and I believe this has provided an adequate backdrop for me to set the stage. Let's look at the rise of the Disney Brothers and the theme park that would define both brothers' legacy. This is a celebration of 50 years of Walt Disney World and everything that led up to it. Let's begin. Our story starts in 1893 when Roy Oliver Disney was born in Chicago. He was the third child born to Elias and Flora Disney, both children of European immigrants and interesting characters in their own right. Eight years later, the couple would produce a fourth child, Walter Elias Disney. Walt for short followed by their only daughter, Ruth, almost two years later to the date. It was a fairly tight-knit household, as the five Disney siblings, Herbert, Raymond, Roy, Walt, and Ruth, remained close for the rest of their lives. But it was Walt and Roy who would truly develop one of the most important and lasting partnerships in all of American cultural history. When Walt was still a toddler, his family moved from Chicago to rural Missouri, due to his uncle owning land there. This is where Walt would spend his childhood, as well as grow closer to his older brother, Roy. Some of Walt's defining passions would blossom in Missouri. His lifelong love of trains was sparked from living by a train station. His well-known work ethic came from his father's purchase of newspaper routes. Walt and Roy were tasked with delivering newspapers on a neighborhood route. 
waking up at 4.30 in the morning to deliver papers before school, and then taking a different route to deliver even more papers after school. It was so much work that poor Walt often fell asleep in class. And of course, Walt's love of filmmaking and cartooning followed quickly after. He started by copying the drawings and magazines that his father read. As he got older, he refined his drawing abilities to doodling whenever he could, even taking courses on cartooning during his precious little time off. One of his classmates introduced him to the budding new world of motion pictures. Literally, pictures that moved. Hence their nickname, Movies. When the family moved from rural Missouri to Kansas City, the state's largest city, Walt got a job as a cartoonist for the school paper in 1917. It's worth noting that at this time, the word cartoon only applied to political cartoons, or, you know, the kind of comic strips you'd see in a newspaper. Movies were just getting their start, and in 1917, very few people had even thought about the idea of moving drawings rather than moving live-action pictures. While Walt honed his drawing skills for his school paper, drawing patriotic cartoons about World War I, his brother Roy was in Europe in the midst of the war itself. Having graduated from high school in 1912, he had worked as a farmer and even as a bank clerk with his brother Raymond before joining the Navy when the United States entered the Great War. While in Europe, he contracted tuberculosis, a bacterial infection that spread like wildfire in the unclean conditions of World War I. He returned to the United States to recover, heading to the growing city of Los Angeles to relocate his work as a banker. His younger brother, Walt, was fresh out of high school, and, like so many young Americans, he was desperate to fight for his country. Though he was too young, he forged his birth certificate and was sent to France as an ambulance driver, right after Armistice Day ended the war. Of course, this didn't stop him from doodling all over his ambulance before he went home. Back in Kansas City, Walt got minor marketing gigs drawing cartoon advertisements and tried his hand at full-blown animation before relocating to Los Angeles at the start of the 1920s. At this time, the only animated cartoons were coming out of New York, in large part thanks to the work of the Fleischer Brothers, animators famous for the creation of Coco the Clown and Betty Boop, as well as the first animation of iconic characters like Popeye and Superman. However, Walt chose to go to Los Angeles instead, because that's where his brother Roy had relocated. Walt figured he could try and get his foot in the door of live-action movies, which were pumped out by a small Los Angeles neighborhood called Hollywood. Walt got Roy's support to go into business together as the Disney Brothers, combining Walt's creativity and love of drawing with Roy's savvy financial skills. The brothers had a bumpy road ahead of them throughout the 1920s, with some glimmers of light here and there. Namely, both men were engaged and married by 1926, with Roy meeting Edna Francis and Walt marrying one of his ink artists, Lillian Bounds. But in the business side of their lives, things were rocky, until Walt struck gold in an agreement with Universal Pictures, the biggest film studio at the time, to make animated shorts. Universal wanted a totally unique character, and so Walt and his close friend, Ub Ewerks, created Oswald the Lucky Rabbit to star in their shorts. Unfortunately, in a shrewd business move, Universal hired most of Walt's animators out from beneath him, and with the intellectual rights to Oswald the Lucky Rabbit, abandoned its partnership with the Disney Brothers. Disheartened and dejected, with only Roy and his Ub Ewerks, who opted not to join Universal, Walt went back to the drawing board. He and Ewerks had found success animating the adventures of a plucky, light-hearted character such as Oswald, but they didn't have the rights to Oswald anymore. So, in 1928, the two created a very familiar mouse called Mortimer Mouse. Walt's wife, Lillian, wasn't usually one to insert herself into Walt's creative process, but she voiced her opinion to her husband that she found the name way too old-fashioned. For a character who was supposed to be charming, fun, and playful, she suggested Mickey as a better name, a nickname for Michael. And it stuck. Walt, who had started to become more of a manager than an animator, 
began to oversee work on Mickey Mouse cartoons, beginning with Plain Crazy and then Steamboat Willie in 1929, one of the first animated cartoons with sound, with Walt himself providing the voice of Mickey Mouse, a role he would keep until 1947. Disney also began its Silly Symphonies series, animated shorts that told a story with music instead of voice acting. The infamous Skeleton Dance, animated almost entirely by Ub Iwerks, was the first in the series, and Disney expanded to hire more artists and animators, including the young artists who would eventually become the Nine Old Men, nine extremely influential animators and directors within the Disney company who would provide work for the company for more than 50 years. Walt bought out Roy's shares in the company, and he became president while Roy became the CEO, a role he would technically keep until 1968. Then disaster struck yet again in the early 1930s. Disney lost their producer, Pat Powers, their musical director, Carl Stalling, and Walt's best friend, Ub Iwerks, due to contract and payment disputes, with Powers having been fed up with Walt's requests for more money. Crushed, Walt suffered a nervous breakdown and took a cruise with his wife to recover. When he returned, Walt was ready to get back to work. His studio began creating silly symphonies in Technicolor, a marvel at the time which paid off by giving the studio its first Academy Award. In 1933, with the extremely successful short The Three Little Pigs, Walt and his team of animators garnered even more praise for the company. Bored with shorts, Walt ordered work on a full-length animated story with an adaptation of the story Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. The idea of making an animated cartoon as long as a regular movie was completely unheard of at the time. In this era, cinemas would play an animated short before the feature presentation, a full-length movie. But Walt Disney saw no reason why a feature presentation couldn't be animated too. Nicknamed Disney's Folly by critics who heard about the concept, many expected it to be a flop, a waste of money for something that would probably be no more successful than a typical Disney short. Those critics were wrong. In a packed 1937 premiere that included the likes of Judy Garland, among other celebrities in the audience, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves received a standing ovation. Critics loved it, audiences loved it, and Snow White went on to be the most financially successful movie in history until Gone with the Wind was released two years later. Still, adjusted for inflation, Snow White remains the 10th best box office performance of any movie in North America, and the highest grossing animated film of all time. The American Film Institute named it as one of the 100 best movies of all time, and specifically the best animated film of all time. I guess it's true what they say, you never forget your first. Jokes aside, Snow White really proved to the world that there was no stopping Walt Disney. His studio continued to receive Academy Award acclamation, including a unique award for Snow White, presented by child star Shirley Temple, which consisted of an Oscar and seven smaller Oscars, in reference to Snow White and her seven dwarf friends. Walt wanted to make more animated films, and his team began work on Pinocchio and Fantasia. However, both films flopped due to releasing in 1940, when the European market was pretty much completely shut down due to World War II. An animator strike further complicated things in the company. Worker salaries had been cut, and combined with Walt's enormous expectations for his animators, rarely ever expressing happiness with their work, the workers refused to work until their demands were met. Many animators left the company altogether. Walt would never forgive the strikers, later accusing many of them of being communists to the House of Representatives Committee on Un-American Activities during the Second Red Scare, even though only one of the three men, David Hilberman, had ever really been associated with communism. This is actually where the popular rumors of Walt Disney's anti-Semitism come from. All three men Walt accused of communist activity were Jewish, and one of them, Herbert Sorrell, seemed to have started the rumor as revenge for the accusation. However, Walt had accused the three of communist activity not because of their Jewish faith, but because he was angry with their strike against his company. And in fact, 
Walt employed dozens, if not hundreds, of Jewish animators and artists who came to his defense against anti-Semitic allegations in the years after they were made. Regardless, after union negotiations, work continued on the next animated film, Dumbo. Critics and audiences liked it, but it didn't make a ton of money, once again due to World War II. As a former newspaper cartoonist during World War I, Walt allowed his studio to make war propaganda films for the U.S. government in the Second World War. This is how we saw Donald Duck promoting war bonds and having nightmares about working for Adolf Hitler, the latter short actually winning an Academy Award. Times were still rough for Disney, however. Another animated feature film, Bambi, released and flopped. This is becoming a pattern. Roy, ever financially shrewd and probably thinking his brother was pouring money down a hole, recommended the studio put out more live-action content, which is a little easier and less expensive to make. This actually did tide them over for a bit due to the successful releases like Seal Island and other similar nature documentary films. Walt took his brother's advice for a while, and the studio and the world itself recovered from the insane economic and human cost of World War II. As the decade came to a close and the animation department started work on a new feature film, Cinderella, Walt was much less involved than he had been in earlier animated films like Snow White and Pinocchio, continuing to be present at story meetings but leaving much of the animation managing to the nine old men. Instead, Walt was finding that he rather enjoyed working on some live-action movies, such as the time he spent overseeing filming of 1950's Treasure Island, based on the novel of the same name. But other interests were beginning to creep into his mind as well. In the late 1940s, Walt took a family trip with his wife and two daughters to Griffith Park in Los Angeles, a sprawling municipal park often compared with Central Park in New York. While watching his daughters play on a merry-go-round, Walt began thinking about creating his own theme park. There were other theme parks in America at the time, but they were usually more in the style of tourist traps, with loud, flashing advertising, death-defying attractions, and such features as freak shows. By contrast, Walt wanted a softer, friendlier place where families could go to enjoy themselves. He saw this firsthand in Europe, when he visited Tivoli Gardens in Denmark, a fascinating place in and of itself, being the world's third oldest amusement park still in full operation today, being the fifth most popular amusement park in all of Europe, and having the oldest wooden roller coaster still in operation, both all the way back in 1914. Tivoli Gardens provided just the inspiration Walt Disney needed for what kind of park he envisioned in the United States, along with other inspirations such as Colonial Williamsburg in Virginia. So in the early 1950s, Walt Disney got to work. He got in touch with Harrison Price, a young architect and economic analyst, who was able to use his skills to pinpoint the best place to put a theme park in terms of climate, profitability, and accessibility for the masses. Price settled on some land in Anaheim, California. The concept grew from a planned 8 acres across the street from Disney Studios to 160 acres further away when designers realized that much more land would be needed for all the ideas Walt had. The original 8 acres was eventually used for the current Disney Animation Studios and ABC Studios. Fun fact. Work on the Disneyland project became Walt's pride and joy, his favorite part of the job. While the nine old men oversaw animation, the company's bread and butter, and Roy handled the business and finance ends of the company, Walt was in Anaheim, t talking with foremen, laughing with construction workers, and personally laying bricks into the ground. The entrance area to the park would be stylized as Main Street USA, directly pulled from the Main Street in the small Kansas town of Marceline that Walt had grown up in. Disneyland would then break off into separate and unique zones, or lands. Fantasyland, Frontierland, Adventureland, and Tomorrowland. The whole park was highlighted by Sleeping Beauty Castle, in reference to the famous fantasy story, though it wouldn't be made into a Disney movie for a few more years. A fan of trains since childhood, Walt also saw fit that a large railroad attraction connected all the areas of the park. At this time, Walt and Roy had negotiated a deal with the floundering TV network, American Broadcasting Company, or ABC, 
giving them exclusive rights to Disney media in return for coverage of Disney projects and some financing of the park. So ABC would regularly air updates and commercials for Disneyland as work continued, leading up to a televised grand opening viewed by over 70 million American households. Opening day was Sunday, June 17th, 1955. And so many things went wrong that the day has become better known in Disney circles as Black Sunday. Actors Art Linkletter, Bob Cummings, and Ronald Reagan, who were hosting the televised event, dealt with constant technical difficulties. Walt had to read the park's opening dedication twice due to a perceived technical malfunction. It was 101 degrees Fahrenheit, and the asphalt on the ground was so fresh, and it was so hot, that women's high heels sunk into it. A local plumber's strike meant that Walt had to choose between running water and functioning toilets. He chose the toilets. I think that was a smart call. But guests were forced to buy water directly instead of utilizing dry water fountains. This was in addition to the backed-up traffic, delaying attendees and celebrity guests alike. Disney invited all attendees back the following day for a proper visit, and in the days, weeks, months, and years following, Disneyland would prove to be a massive success. It became the go-to travel destination for American families, as well as international guests. In the middle of the Cold War, Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev took a diplomatic trip to the United States with only two requests, to meet John Wayne and to visit Disneyland. Unfortunately for Khrushchev, it was decided that a trip to the crowded park would be too dangerous in the midst of such fear and tension. I didn't know this before researching this episode, but Doritos were actually invented at Disneyland. Workers at a Frito-Lay restaurant in the park started finding ways to utilize old tortillas without throwing them away, and created the small snacks available for a limited time in the park. The Frito-Lay company took interest, and the chips took off. Disneyland was a smash hit. The Disney company had pioneered the animation industry, created a whole new genre of films, and had now made the most successful and beloved theme park in the world. In Roy's view, they came, they saw, they conquered, and it was now time to start thinking about retirement. But as Roy prepared to retire into the 1960s, Walt still had the pep in his step that he had had since boyhood. He continued overseeing new animated features such as Lady and the Tramp and 101 Dalmatians, and after a 20-year battle for the rights to P.L. Travers' book series Mary Poppins, a Disney film was finally made in 1964 in live action. Critics and audiences adored it, and it was the most successful Disney film of the 1960s, although Travers couldn't stand it and came to regret selling the rights to Disney. But while Disney continued to make movies, Walt himself oversaw production on new fields and attractions designed to amaze. Walt played a key role in the founding of California Institute of the Arts, otherwise known as CalArts, an art and animation school in Santa Clarita, California, and the alma mater of too many famous animators, artists, actors, and actresses to list here. The 1959 American National Exhibition in Moscow, an exhibit on American culture and innovations during the Cold War, is largely known today for the famous kitchen debate between Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev and American Vice President Richard Nixon. But Walt Disney played a role in the event planning, even contributing a 19-minute patriotic film, America the Beautiful, showcased in 360 degrees thanks to innovations made possible by none other than Walt's old animation buddy, Ub Ewerks, who had quietly rejoined the company in the 1940s, and his son Don. The attraction was very popular among exhibition guests. Walt's involvement in the 1964 World's Fair would be truly impactful in terms of the Disney legacy. With funding from corporate sponsors, Walt created a variety of attractions most Disney fans could still recognize today. It's a Small World was a boat ride attraction that showcased the children of the world and promoted the ideas of world peace and diversity. The Carousel of Progress showcased human innovation, 
taking guests on a tour from the late 1800s to the 1960s to see that there's a great big beautiful tomorrow shining at the end of every day. And then there was great moments with Mr. Lincoln. Walt, a lover of America and American history, was a huge fan of Abraham Lincoln, and the idea of creating an animatronic Lincoln that one could actually hear speak was one long in the making. If you've ever been to Walt Disney World and seen the Hall of Presidents attraction, and you know how Abraham Lincoln has a big speech in the middle of it? That's why. It was actually reworked from this Abraham Lincoln attraction. Walt worked on this project with his older brother, Raymond Disney. Raymond was a peculiar character in Disney history, a lifelong bachelor who hung around Disney Studios in the 1920s and 30s trying to sell Walt and Roy's employees insurance. But he was a huge Lincoln buff too, and the idea of working on this with Walt was too good of an opportunity to pass up. This was also in the wake of the death of their eldest brother, Herbert Disney, in 1961. By the 1960s, the Disney family was getting old. The stress of a 40-year career in a precarious and often unprecedented job as well as Walt's lifelong smoking habits, which he tried to hide his best from the public eye as he hated the idea of the children he entertained seeing him smoke, they were beginning to take their toll on Walt. But one wouldn't know this as Walt was still a child at heart and often talked and acted like he still was one. After the 1964 World's Fair, in which Disney was a smash hit as always, Walt began to look for land for another theme park attraction. Disneyland was around 10 years old at this point, very young for a theme park, but from a financial standpoint, Disney would have benefited greatly from an East Coast property in addition to their existing West Coast theme park. Only about 5% of Disneyland guests traveled from the East Coast or even anywhere east of the Mississippi River. So there was clearly an untapped market. In addition, Disneyland was looking a little too small to contain all of Walt's ideas. This was not helped by the growth of Anaheim including many copycat theme parks that sprung up around the property, seeking to capitalize on families taking trips to Disneyland. Walt now realized that to get around this, he would have to own as much land as he could in order to create whatever he wanted, without limits of space or the concerns of local governments. So he got in touch with his old planner friend, Harrison Price, who looked at real estate in New York and Washington, D.C., before deciding that Orlando, Florida would be the best location, due to its relatively untapped, expansive status and the absence of severe winters in Florida that could have damaged or complicated any theme park. For the most part, landowners in Orlando were happy to sell, since most of the property Disney was eyeing was swampland, useless for farming. Disney purchased land through dummy corporations, meaning they created corporations with names like I-4 Corporation and Reedy Creek Ranch Corporation for the sole purpose of buying land. This was to prevent a rush of land speculation. If Disney had bought hundreds of acres in Orlando, made it all public, it would have alerted others who might rush to buy the land, making everything more expensive and complicating Walt's plans of self-reliance. And indeed, the press was interested in the mysterious anonymous body buying land in Orlando. Speculation and rumors abounded. Was it NASA buying land for their blossoming space program? Was it the Ford Motor Company planning some new plants? Or could it be some wealthy tycoon like John Rockefeller III or Howard Hughes? Eventually, Disney's name entered the rumor mill, but Walt tried to dissuade this by assuring reporters he wanted to invest more money into Disneyland and wasn't interested in spending money across the country. Some brought this denial, but others weren't so convinced. Realizing the press was on to him, Walt Disney asked Florida Governor Hayden Burns, who had worked closely with the company throughout this juncture, to host a joint press conference with himself and Roy on October 25, 1965, a few weeks earlier than he had anticipated. Roy finally prepared for retirement as Walt let loose his dreams for the Florida Project, as it was called, later finalized as Disney World. 
In addition to more resorts and a theme park, the Magic Kingdom, that was basically a larger version of Disneyland with the same themed zones, Walt was most excited to embark on something totally new, a fully-fledged society. As his career had shown, Walt had always had a fascination with the future and with human progress, a fascination that had been seen with the Tomorrowland Zone in Disneyland and with the Carousel of Progress at the 1964 World's Fair. So Walt wanted to create an entire planned community around this idea. He envisioned a town where everything was always up to date with the newest technological marvels, including many of his own creations, such as people movers instead of cars. He would rule over this town as its leader, pretty much getting to oversee an ever-changing theme park where all the attractions bettered humanity. Walt called this planned community the Experimental Planned Community of Tomorrow, or EPCOT for short. This was to be his magnum opus, the culmination of a career's worth of innovation located on this new Florida land. A resort, a theme park, and the civilization of tomorrow. Unfortunately, for as exciting as the Disney World project had become, Walt would not live to see it. His decades of smoking had caught up with him, and he was diagnosed with lung cancer in early 1966. He remained involved in the early planning stages of the Florida Project and helped with the story work on another animated film, The Jungle Book, as well as a live-action musical film, The Happiest Millionaire, and a short film utilizing an exciting new IP, Winnie the Pooh. But Walt wouldn't live to see the completion of any of these projects. His lung cancer claimed him on December 15, 1966, only 10 days after his 65th birthday. It was a major blow to his friends and families. The diagnosis had come less than a year earlier. With this tragedy... Roy Disney made the executive decision to delay his retirement and oversee the completion of his brother's dream. Roy was a financial man. Roy was a financial man, a savvy businessman with an eye on what was practical, not what was fun. He lacked the risky dreamer demeanor of his brother, which was why he fretted constantly when Walt had made massive expensive decisions at the drop of a hat, such as a full-length animated film or a theme park. But Roy was determined to see Disney World come into fruition, even if it meant he had to think like Walt. With his brother's plans, work on Disney World roared into the 1970s. Roy held talks with the Florida state government and its new governor, Claude Kirk Jr., in order to get the area of land containing Disney World and Epcot a large degree of self-governance. By the end of negotiations, the area became its own district, the Reedy Creek Improvement District. The new district government, perhaps in air quotes, got straight to work draining the swamp water and setting down foundation. Roy was determined to include a railroad of some kind, similar to the one in Disneyland, so the company managed to locate out-of-commission locomotives and create the Disney World Railroad that still travels around the Magic Kingdom today. Roy wasn't quite sure how to go about making a planned community, so he shelved the idea and prepared to open Disney World with only the resort and Magic Kingdom. Instead of Sleeping Beauty Castle, the centerpiece of the Magic Kingdom would be Cinderella's Castle, which has become so iconic in its own right that it's a piece of the Disney logo that plays before every film or short film the company's put out. There was just one more score left for Roy to settle, the name of the park. Disney World was harmless, but not good enough, as Roy felt it lacked reference to the man who made it all possible. He explained the park's name change, and I quote, Everyone has heard of Ford cars, but have they all heard of Henry Ford who started it all? Walt Disney World is in memory of the man who started it all, so people will know his name as long as Walt Disney World is here. On October 1st, 1971, Roy O. Disney oversaw the opening of Walt Disney World and gave a dedication ceremony later in the month, explicitly christening the park Walt Disney World and honoring his younger brother. As an anecdote goes, Roy walked up to Walt's widow, Lillian Disney, and asked her if he thought Walt would be proud. She replied, I think Walt would have approved. 
Content with finalizing the last piece of his brother's legacy, Roy Disney was finally at peace. He retired not long after the ceremony and passed away only a few months later on December 20th, 1971, following a stroke. He was 78. It's practically impossible to fully understand the footprint that the Disney brothers left on film, culture, innovation, animation, entertainment, and countless other pursuits. From the very first cartoons with sound to the very first theme park to break 100 million ticket sales. After the deaths of Walt and Roy, plenty of other key players in our story remained, and some new ones joined in. By the 1970s, most of the nine old men either passed away or entered retirement, though many still continue to make cameo appearances in the animated world, such as old men Ollie Johnston and Frank Thomas's bit parts in both 1999's The Iron Giant and 2004's The Incredibles, due to director Brad Bird's love and appreciation of their tutelage. Harrison Price, the planner, helped pick the spot to put Tokyo Disneyland in the early 1980s and would also help consult on the location of Busch Gardens, among other theme parks. Raymond Disney lived to be 98 years old and died in 1989, outliving both of his younger brothers. The sibling's only sister, Ruth Disney, the youngest child, passed away in 1995 at the age of 91. Walt's widow, Lillian Disney, lived until 1997. Walt Disney's daughter, Diane, married Ron Miller, a former football player who would become a producer and eventually CEO at Disney from 1980 to 1984. Diane passed away in 2013, Ron in 2019. And Roy E. Disney, Roy O. Disney's son and Walt Disney's nephew, would remain involved in the company until his death in 2009. He's probably interesting enough for his own Renaissance Man episode, but he's a Disney, so we may as well cover him here. Involved with the business dealings of the company since the 1950s, Roy E. Disney oversaw the company's animation department over the course of the so-called Disney Renaissance, and his own pet project was Fantasia 2000. Part of the reason why Disney animator Jeffrey Katzenberg left the company and formed DreamWorks was because of how much Roy disliked him. Into the 2000s, Roy E. Disney organized the outsting of Michael Eisner as Disney CEO due to dissatisfaction with how Eisner treated both him and Steve Jobs, who had brought a lot of success to the company with his animation group Pixar. Eisner was replaced with Bob Iger. Roy E. Disney is generally regarded as the last Disney family member involved with the company dealings. However, there is still one interesting piece of the puzzle absent from Walt Disney's legacy, his idea for a planned community. Early work on Epcot transitioned the idea from an actual town to a park experience similar to a World's Fair, with attractions based on technology and entire world pavilion showcasing different countries from around the world. This was largely due to the uniqueness of the original concept and the fact that Walt was probably the only person bold and stubborn enough to push it. His brother Roy wasn't sure what to do with it, and none of the new shareholders or businessmen involved with leading the company after Roy's own death wanted to pour money into it. So Epcot became a new theme park, and that was that. For a while. But in the early 1990s, Disney established a new offshoot company to develop 4,900 acres of unused land in the Reedy Creek Development District, Remember, that's the district Disney World is a part of. Disney CEO Michael Eisner wanted to see the full realization of Walt's dream for Epcot, an actual planned community. And so, with the help of distinguished architects and planners, the planned community of Celebration Florida was up and running by the mid-1990s. So many people wanted to move into the quaint little neighborhood that Disney had to host a lottery. Celebration still exists today and has small businesses and offices, churches, and a movie theater. There's a community pool, parks fields for sports, and hundreds of houses. There's a library and a public school system that acts as an extension of the nearby Osceola County School District. It wasn't quite the futuristic people-mover Tomorrowland that Walt Disney had planned, but Disney had created a sleek, modern, planned community. Of course, other than being Walt Disney's final dream and 
Michael Eisner's pet project, the Disney company really wasn't sure what to do with a whole town on its hands, so they sold it to a private real estate firm in 2004. The town has been rocked with scandal and unease since, mostly due to alleged corruption, as well as mold, mildew, pests, and hurricanes, and a host of other problems, including apparently a murder? Pretty dark stuff. So I don't think Celebration ended up being what Walt Disney exactly had in mind, but it's a great way to cap off this episode on Walt Disney and Walt Disney World. The final piece of his legacy was at least attempted, even if things went awry. This gives the great plans of Walt Disney a span of nearly a century, from doodling cartoons in the 1910s to seeing his dream of a planned community created in the 1990s, with innovation after innovation in between. His legacy will always extend far beyond Mickey, Minnie, Donald, and Goofy. Without Walt, animations as we know them may have just stayed as shorts, and the best theme parks for families may have remained in Europe. And that's not to say Roy isn't without his accomplishments either. He was tasked with finding ways to somehow fund Walt's larger-than-life ideas and make them a reality. One gets a real sense of how much he truly loved his brother. However, he was always one to shy away from the spotlight. Not like that prevented him from getting a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame along with Walt. Today we celebrate 50 years of the most magical place on earth. 50 years since a man, in the twilight of his life, humbly dedicated the most successful vacation destination in human history to his brother. A dreamer and a visionary. So that just about wraps up the history of Walt and Roy Disney, their company and their legacy. I know I probably could have just done today's episode as a reflection of Walt Disney World itself, but I think the Disney story works best with Walt Disney World as the very end and Celebration Florida as an epilogue. Whatever you think of the Disney Brothers Company today, whether you think it's just as innovative as ever, or more so, or if you think it's a shell of its former self, too bland, too cynical, too political, too monopolistic, or any other number of possible criticisms, there's no question that in my mind that Disney was, at least at some point, a trailblazer in every sense of the term, and Walt Disney World perfectly represents the culmination of all that. You've just listened to another episode of Geeks Crossing, A special thanks to the various editors and authors who've published accounts of the story of the Disney Brothers. If you're interested in learning more, I highly recommend Neil Gabler's biography on Walt Disney, The Triumph of the American Imagination, super in-depth. If you're interested in a set of biographies, Bob Thomas's books on Walt and Roy are definitely worth your time. Walt Disney, an American original, and Roy Disney, building a company. And although I haven't personally explored them, my research led me to a book on Roy E. Disney's feud with Michael Eisner and Jeffrey Katzenberg, Disney War by James P. Stewart, and The Celebration Florida Story, Celebration USA, Living in Disney's Brave New Town by Douglas Franz and Catherine Collins, though this one was released before things kind of got crappy in the town, so be warned. Have you ever been to Walt Disney World? How about Disneyland or any of the international Disney resorts? What do you think about Disney? Let us know in our Discord or on our Instagram. Links are provided in the description of this episode as always. I sure hope you learned something here because this episode was a ton of fun to research. Be sure to continue to support us wherever you're listening to us right now, whether that be Anchor, Spotify, Apple or Google Podcasts, or iHeartRadio. Catch Keith and Nick over on Twitch at Nuclear Bacons and CryptoLock Gaming, as well as our dear friend and special guest Tyler at CarrotBite Gaming. Send them some love. Be sure to tell your friends and family about us, especially the Disney fans in your life. I'm Matt, and keep moving forward.